Welcome to the third podcast in the Pain Coach series. These podcasts address the FDA's opioid analgesic REMS education blueprint. Listen as Dr. Catherine Galuzzi, professor and chair of the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine's Department of Geriatrics and Palliative Medicine, and Dr. Keila Herr, Kelting Professor of Nursing and Associate Dean of Faculty at the University of Iowa College of Nursing. Consider steps in managing older patients on opioid analgesics. Kate, speaking generally, what steps should we take before prescribing opioids? And do these steps differ depending on whether we're treating acute versus chronic pain? Kila, there are some important steps that we need to take for all of our patients, young and old, whether we're treating acute versus chronic pain. The rationale is we don't want to be broadsided by finding out that our patient has had problems with medications before. We need to get a good medication history. We need to do complete medication reconciliation. And then if we're considering an opioid, we do need to check the prescription drug monitoring program. This is very important because we want to make sure that the patient is not being co-prescribed a benzodiazepine or other sedative or is getting opioid medication from another provider to be caught off guard. And the PDMP is the best way uh, to be able to do that. Then we should certainly screen the patient. Even our senior patients, if you're just beginning to consider a trial of an opioid, you would want to screen the patient using an opioid use disorder risk tool. And we're going to talk about the ORT-OUD later. The next step is we have to establish treatment goals. We're looking at functional and lifestyle and quality of life goals for our patients. In addition to the simple goal of pain relief. We want our patients to be able to spend the afternoon with their grandchildren or walk the dog around the block. Some of our patients may be having orthopedic surgery. They want to be in good condition to rehab as well as possible. And that may include use of an opioid postoperatively. These are the kinds of treatment goals that I think it's important for us to look at. We certainly have to look at baseline assessments of the patient's pain. Where is the pain? Are we able to identify the pain generator? How is the patient functioning? What is their fall risk, especially in fragile older individuals? We have to make sure that we mitigate that as best as possible. We already mentioned other medications that they're taking and their potentials for interaction. And I think that this cannot be overstated, especially in older individuals who have very high levels of polypharmacy. It's important to involve family members or loved ones or caregivers in the treatment plan helping them to establish the functional goals and enlisting their assistance in monitoring the functional goals. That can actually help us determine the efficacy of the medication. The family members, the individuals around the patient need to be educated. A classic thing that happens in our hospice inpatient or our palliative care inpatient unit is uh, a loved one will come into the unit because their pain was not being well managed at home. 
we administer the medications as they have been prescribed and the patient becomes somnolent because the family really wasn't giving the medication as directed. And they'll say to us, we didn't want mom to come here so you would just put her to sleep. So we sometimes have to educate patients and caregivers that if there is a prescribed course of therapy, and it seems that the patient is becoming over-sedated, that we need them to report to us rather than simply not treating the patient and maybe not letting the patient get the, the rest and the analgesia that they need. Certainly, everyone around a patient who's on an opioid needs to be aware of the risks. We may need to consider having uh, naloxone in the homes of the patients are on high doses of opioids, or if there's a risk for an overdose, or if the patient has a concomitant medical condition like uh, COPD or respiratory insufficiency of some form. So those are the things that are very important to assess. Patient provider agreements. The PPA, this basically tells the patient and the provider who does what. What is your role? What is your agreement versus what is my responsibility? There will be one pharmacy. There will be one provider. And also, what would be grounds for divorce? Letting the patient and the caregivers know that it's not acceptable to be misusing or abusing these medications. If we find out that there's been a problem of diversion, that would be uh, grounds for eliminating our therapeutic contract. And so the PPA is like a contract between the patient and the provider. Now, you may say, well, we don't want to have to be in that kind of a situation with our patients, but you certainly wouldn't do surgery on someone without doing an informed consent. So the PPA is your informed consent when you've agreed that you want to give a trial of an opioid to your patient. And then baseline urine testing. It's important to get a urine drug screen initially so that you can determine whether the patient is in fact taking medications that may interfere or be dangerous with an opioid. Is this different for acute versus chronic prescribing? I don't really think so. It's important to let everyone know that we're not singling them out. If we have a patient and we're doing a urine drug test on them, they should know that this is routine whenever we're using opioid therapy and that we're doing it really to protect the patient and everyone around the patient and that it's just a protocol and then finally, the other safety concerns of making sure that everyone understands safe storage, a lockbox if necessary, and also making a determination about whether co-prescribing naloxone is appropriate. So it's a lot to think about, but these are very important steps because the risks could be so high and burdensome. Hey, that was an excellent overview of the steps before prescribing opioid. Could you share some of the considerations about how to initiate opioid therapy um, for our older patients? Sure. For initiating opioids, questions have arisen about whether it may be in some cases appropriate to use an extended release long-acting opioid but I think most expert panels and certainly the CDC guideline supports beginning a therapeutic trial with an immediate release opioid and prescribing the lowest effective dose. 
you have to use caution at any dosage and you have had to up titrate to approximately 50 morphine milligram equivalents per day, you need to stop and think about whether you're getting the efficacy from the medication that you were looking at. And that requires that you look at the patient's functionality, how the patient is responding, get a measure of their mood, and also assessing their cognition. You know, we want patients to be able to participate not just in their normal daily activities, but certainly in rehab if they're trying to come back from an injury or from surgery. As we said, having all your ducks in a row with respect to the patient-provider agreement, the baseline urine, drug testing, and considerations for co-prescribing naloxone, but initially beginning a therapeutic trial would be with an immediate-release opioid. So, Kate, would there be a place for extended release with acute pain? Some of the extended release products are low enough in dosage that you could be using them as a first-line medication. But I think of using an IR opioid as a good way of gauging how the patient is going to respond to the medication. Some of our patients who have one or two doses of morphine develop delirium, or they may develop myoclonus, which is going to be very difficult to treat. It makes sense to give them a short-acting product so that it will leave their system in a shorter period of time. In using that first line in initiating opioid therapy for acute pain, would we be using the products as needed or daily or around the clock? I think you've already covered that in a prior podcast, Keela, when you said it really depends on whether the individual is able to self-report their pain and able to access the medication themselves. For someone who's not able to get out of bed, to be consigned to having to call for the medication only when they need it, what ends up happening is by the time they start asking for it, their pain levels are beginning to escalate. If they're residing in long-term care facilities, assisted living, or even in the hospital setting, it makes sense to schedule the medication every four to six hours or every 12 hours or eight hours, depending upon the formulation, so that the patient is not in a situation where they're in pain and they're having to wait. All these things have to be taken into consideration. The other thing that I like to tell families and caregivers is how to check someone's respiratory rate. So if an individual is on a new opioid medication or on an up titration, a higher dose of an opioid. For the first 24 to 48 hours, make sure the family's paying attention to their respiratory rate. If the patient's usual respiratory rate is 14 and now it's dropping to seven or five, there's a problem and they need to be able to intervene quickly to prevent respiratory arrest. Yeah, that's a really good point, Kate. I don't think we often do educate the family or caregivers to monitor respiratory rate? Well, I think it's reasonable. It's something that they can do rather than just telling the family, you know, to monitor for sedation or somnolence. Well, we know that the patient is going to become somnolent when we give them an opioid. And in fact, it may be very therapeutic for the patient to be able to sleep 
now that they're comfortable enough. I think that looking at their respiratory rate is really important. And the other thing that we didn't talk about when initiating opioids is the not so golden rule. You know the not so golden rule, Keila? I'm not sure what one you're referring to. Well, the not so golden rule is that the clinician who prescribes an opioid must be the clinician who prescribes a laxative. You must initiate a bowel regimen at the time that you initiate an opioid, or you're going to have to face the consequences thereof. (laughs) Not desirable. So before we move on to talk about chronic pain, what's your position related to abuse deterrent opioid formulations and whether or not these should be considered for older adults with acute pain? The rationale is a good one. They can't be crushed. They can't be pulverized. You can't turn it into a powder and mix it with something to inject it. Unfortunately, I hate to say this, but I think that where there's a will, there's a way. Individuals will find ways to get around these things. And I'm not thinking so much of the individual patient, him or herself, but rather of someone who may be getting them through diversion. However, the big problem in the older population is most are on Medicare or Medicaid, and these medications are still under patent protection, and there are no generic formulations of them, so they're quite expensive. Patients may not uh, be able to afford them. I do think that they have a very important role to play, and I'm hoping that they will become more cost-effective, especially for older patients in whom we're concerned that, like we said earlier, there may be a lot of people in the house. Great, Kate. Let's shift our focus now to talk about older adults with chronic pain. Um, For which of these might opioids be appropriate, and how would we start treatment? Patients with chronic pain are probably one of the most challenging medical situations because you really are entering into a long-term therapeutic relationship. So the first thing you have to consider is have we done everything else that we can? Has the patient been to physical therapy? Have they seen a physiatrist? Are there interventional options that we have tried and failed? Patients who haven't responded to any of the non-opioid pharmacologic options or any of the complementary alternative medicine types of options, you know, like aqua therapy or heat therapy, really should be considered. You talked earlier about Roger Chow's 2009 Opioid Treatment Guidelines And I would encourage the audience to look at their recommendations because they do say that chronic opioid therapy can be effective for carefully selected and monitored patients with chronic non-cancer pain. And of course, there are newer guidelines available as well. As we've already said, this is really a case for trial and error. I liken this to trying on clothes You really don't know how the patient is going to react to the opioid because there is tremendous individual variation among patients. So I do think that opioids may be appropriate for chronic non-cancer ongoing pain. However, it is going to require significant diligence on the part of the patient, the patient's caregivers or family, and the prescriber to make sure that these patients can be kept safe. That said, patients who are in palliative care, who have 
serious life-threatening disease states or those who are facing the end of life certainly are good candidates for opioid therapy because uh, it may really make the difference in their quality of life and their ability to go forward with their medical situation. Yeah, I think those are excellent points, Kate. And, you know, from my perspective, it comes back to what are the patient's goals and what are their current functional abilities given the goals that they've established. And those can be very different from a chronic pain situation to a palliative care situation. I think what's been really sad to see is the reaction to the opioid crisis has led to many patients in palliative care who have had their pain managed long-term on low-dose opioids, maintaining good function without adverse effects, and having their medications either rapidly tapered um, or stopped abruptly and are suffering and struggling with the resulting issues of how they're going to live out the rest of their life without their pain managed effectively. The last thing we want is to send these patients to the street because as is now well known, the overdose crisis in America right now is really around carfentanil and sufentanil, which are basically veterinary grades of fentanyl. So very, very potent medications, very dangerous for patients to get on the street. And if we're not able to treat them, we could drive them that way. I have to just temper that though by saying, I think it's be unlikely that senior citizens themselves would do that. But family members who are frustrated or upset may in fact turn to that type of thing. Yep, I agree. So in thinking about implementing an opioid treatment plan longer term, Are there some general rules that you tend to follow, focusing on keeping patients as functional as possible? Well, I like to think about the five A's, Keila, for pain, and they are analgesia. You already described some very good tools for measuring pain relief, pain scales that can be very useful to show the patient and the family that you are making progress towards getting better analgesia and with the understanding that they're probably never going to get to zero on uh, a visual analog pain scale. Activity and function is the second A. So analgesia, activity. What is the patient able to do now that they were not able to do before? How close are we getting to meeting the functional goals that we've set? Is the individual showing aberrant or problematic behavior? Do they seem withdrawn? Do they seem like there may be something going on with them that wasn't present before? And adverse events. Is the individual experiencing some of the common side effects of opioid analgesia? I already mentioned myoclonus, but other things like itching or nausea and vomiting or excessive sedation and somnolence and certainly constipation all need to be assessed at every visit. And then finally, the patient's affect. How is their mood? How is their behavior? Is the medication affecting them in a positive way or in a negative way? I like those A's. I think those are really good to be useful as an acronym to help us remember some of the important things that we should be evaluating. Thank you. We hear about the general rule about analgesics in general, but opioids specifically about starting low and going slow. 
Are there other considerations in the dosing and reevaluation regimen to be considered with long-term opioid treatment? Well, you know, I like the start low, go slow adage for, for geriatrics in general. But if somebody's in pain, I think we should start low and go. I don't have a problem with up titrating every 48 to 72 hours if the patient is having significant pain, and especially if they're being closely monitored for respiratory depression. And are we going to consider using an ERLA for the patient? In other words, if the patient is on an immediate release opioid and they have developed opioid tolerance, but they're having to take it every four or every six hours around the clock, that's going to be very difficult in terms of maintenance of sleep and maintenance of routine daily activities. So that might be a time to think about moving toward an extended release or long-acting opioid. And again, you know, no understanding the concept of tolerance, uh, meaning that the patient will more than likely be able to increase the dose and not have an adverse effect is really important. So understanding the definition of opioid tolerance is important. The FDA definition is based on morphine milligram equivalents using an equianalgesic dosing table. So roughly 60 milligrams of oral morphine is equivalent to 30 milligrams of oxycodone or 8 milligrams of hydromorphone, or 25 milligrams of oxymorphone. And in order to be considered opioid tolerant, someone has to have been taking that 60 milligrams of morphine or 30 milligrams of oxycodone daily for one week or longer. So before I would even begin to move to considering putting a patient onto an extended release long-acting opioid, I would want to make sure that they have developed true tolerance to it. So Kate, what would you do if you were to consider switching opioids? Keila, that's a really important question because when we think about how individuals respond to opioids, there are some individuals who will have adverse reactions. They may continue to have uh, persistent itching or persistent nausea, and we may need to switch them from their opioid to another one. Another thing may be that the patient is developing renal insufficiency and we don't want to use morphine and we would prefer the patient to be on, uh, for example, oxycodone, which has less effect on renal function. So opioid rotation basically relies on equianalgesic dosing, where you take the value of the medication that you're currently on versus the value of the new opioid. And these are based on the equianalgesic table. And then you calculate the 24-hour dose of the current opioid and solve for the amount of the new opioid. So it would give you an equianalgesic 24-hour dose of the new opioid. And then we have to automatically reduce that dose by 25 to 50% due to incomplete cross-tolerance, which means that when you introduce the new opioid, you're going to actually have an enhancement of the analgesia. Now, I recognize that this is math, and a lot of us don't enjoy doing mathematics, but it's very important because you don't want to overshoot and cause respiratory depression, nor do you want to undershoot 
and precipitate withdrawal symptoms. So everyone should avail themselves of a good equianalgesic opioid rotation table and become familiar with it so that we can make these changes effectively and safely. That's very helpful, Kate. So for some patients, is there a point where opioids are no longer necessary or beneficial? How, and how would you know? We've already mentioned the problem of hyperalgesia, and we know that hyperalgesia is an increased sensitivity of pain, and it usually occurs at high MME doses, usually over long periods of time. Let's listen to this patient's story. Rhonda is a 71-year-old retired pharmaceutical representative who required a right below-the-knee amputation for osteosarcoma. Her postoperative pain was initially well-managed with an extended-release opioid taken every eight hours and an immediate-release opioid taken every four to six hours as needed. However, she developed right-sided phantom limb pain manifesting as pins and needles, electric shock-like pain, and burning which occurred throughout the day and worsened at night. Her physician doubled, then tripled her ER opioid dose, which helped at first. However, she now complains of pain not only in her right leg, but also in her low back, pelvis, and left leg that is exacerbated by touch, cold, or movement. I just don't know what to do. I understand the deal with phantom pain, but now this. I have pain that has nothing to do with the surgery. My pain doctor says I may have developed increasing pain because of the high opioid doses. She wants to decrease the opioids, maybe even stop them over time, while starting some other medications for the phantom pain. I'm not sure this will work, but I have to try something. Let's return to our experts for commentary. So this is a physiological phenomenon. The pain is getting worse and it's appearing in new locations distal to the original pain generator. At that point, increases in opioid dose actually worsen pain rather than improve it. And it's going to be critical to reduce and eliminate the opioid and look at alternative treatment plans. And if the patient is having increasing pain, despite your increasing the doses appropriately, you know, with an uptitration schedule, or if the patient is just simply not improving in the absence of underlying disease progression, then I think that, you know, that would be a reason for us to consider withdrawing the patient from opioids and doing a cautious down titration. Keila, do you sometimes find that patients are resistant to stopping opioids or maybe the family members are resistant? And are there times when we should be concerned about family members or caregivers? Yes, definitely. I've been in situations where the older adult did not want to stop their opioid therapy. And it's usually because it is the treatment that is managing their pain effectively. And so they're not going to be convinced that they need to stop if they're not experiencing some of the adverse effects that we've talked about. They may have been on the same drug and the same dose for years with good function and outcome. And um, unfortunately, many of those patients are being taken off of their opioids and probably needlessly. And we do see family members that may not want to stop opioids. I don't think they're typically resistant in a normal situation um, and often are 
concerned about long-term opioid use as well. I think we need to ask the question if there's something else going on here. Is there a potential for diversion or why does the family member not want to stop the opioids? And it may be a very valid reason that they're loved one is comfortable and it's taken them a long time to get to the place where their pain is managed and we absolutely want to support that. But if that's not the case and there are concerns and issues with the opioid that would warrant stopping them, we need to have a conversation and try to understand where they're coming from. I agree. That's a good time to have a sit down. I have an anecdote from one of my colleagues. She's actually a palliative care physician. Her father had been on chronic opioid therapy for many years because he had very, very severe OA of his knees. Over time, he was able to undergo the surgery and he had uh, total knee replacements and he was maintained and through the operative period and rehab with his opioids. He rehabbed very well and he Uh, at one point decided that he didn't need his medication anymore. And it became a tremendous shock to my friend when she got the call from the emergency room to learn that her father was in acute withdrawal because he had just completely stopped his (laughs) opioids. No one had told him that he needed to withdraw them slowly and cautiously. So yes, (laughs) families do need to be very much involved Well, that's a great segue, Kate, into the next topic when we are wanting to switch to a non-opioid approach. How do we go about tapering opioids that have been used um, for a long-term treatment plan? Really, there is no single approach that's appropriate for every single patient, and you may need a range of approaches for your different patient population. But in general, a slow approach would be a 10% dose reduction per week, and that should definitely be safe. If for some reason your patient has to be taken off the medication more quickly, you would be then looking at something like a 25 to 50% reduction in the dose every three to four days. You should definitely use adjuvant medications to minimize withdrawal symptoms. Um, you may need to use some antiemetics, antidiarrheal agents. And one of the things that we have found to be very useful is clonidine in mitigating the very, very unpleasant symptoms of opioid withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about any advice you have regarding disposal of leftover opioids and particularly um, as a way of avoiding risk to others. I think that the gold standard is really a take-back program. If you're in a community where either the pharmacy or the police department has a take-back program, that's what I think you should do. You certainly should not have your patient bring the medications to your office for you to dispose of them. Um, But it can be a problem, especially in palliative care, if the patient has, you know, a comfort kit in the home and then they die, the family is left with, you know, all of these medications. So counseling families that those medications need to be returned, ideally to a take-back location, uh, is very important. If there is no availability of a take-back, what the FDA recommends is to de-identify the medication, take the medication out of the bottle so no one can know what it is, mix it with something very unsavory like cat litter, and then dispose of it in the trash. And 
it is okay, according to the FDA, to flush leftover mm -hmm. opioids. I don't know how you feel about these things. I hate to see these things going into the environment. No, I think that is a big concern for a lot of individuals. So looking at the opportunities to submit them back to the pharmacy or somewhere else is probably a better option. So I know in the next podcast, we're going to talk more about opioid use disorder, but kind of as a segue into that, do you have any pearls about what you use to suspect opioid use disorder may be occurring in your older adult? Some of those things that we talked about before where patients are manifesting unusual behaviors, aberrant behaviors, uh, that kind of thing. If we suspect diversion, then I think we have to be very, very cautious. Someone who has substance use disorder may have pain and it may be someone who's already taking analgesic medications for pain. So I think that would be uh, a time when we might consider getting a pain specialist involved. But the tool that we have now that we can use is the ORTOUD, and we're going to go over that in our next podcast. Thanks, Kate. You know, and I just wanted to add here related to individuals with opioid use disorder is that that doesn't negate our treating them and treating their pain effectively. There are guidelines and recommendations about managing the coexisting conditions of opioid use disorder and chronic pain. It comes down to compassion and caring for each individual and helping them to achieve the best outcome possible using safe, effective approaches to prevent misuse and abuse. So I think we're at the end of this podcast, Kate, and I'm just going to ask if you have a couple of key points to summarize. My key points would be that chronic opioid therapy may be an option for our older patients who have chronic persistent pain, who are carefully selected and carefully monitored in an ongoing fashion. This is a compassionate use of these medications, knowing that there is a risk involved and that we really have to partner with the patient, the caregivers, and the family so that we can get the best outcomes for our patients and improve their quality of life. Thank you, Kate, for sharing your knowledge and experience on this important topic. And for you, the listeners, we encourage you to join us to the final podcast in this series focusing on addiction medicine, a primer. This podcast is part of a series. Listen to the next one, Addiction Medicine, a primer.